Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Turn to Mark chapter 16, and we'll be starting with verse 9. And the thing is, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life in order for all of those who believe him that do have sin, that they could be forgiven of them. That's the whole reason Jesus was perfect, but so our sins could be placed on him. And the thing is, is that that would give us, with his forgiveness and the ability to forgive ourselves, we can move on and have the power to navigate through this life until we reach our eternal one. So since his ascension into heaven after the resurrection, we have his word as recorded in the Bible and the Holy Spirit to intercede on God's behalf. But today, today's Christian and church does not suffer from a lack of power or a lack of information, but they suffer from the ability or the want to do the will of Jesus and what he commands. So before we jump into the scripture this morning, I do need to lay down a little bit of groundwork because some of you may have some notes in your Bible that that kind of look confusing. I know in the New Living Translation, it talks about the fact that these verses that we're talking about this morning, some would say, are not really part of the book of Mark. And so, as we see here, should the scriptures we're studying be in the Bible or not? So in your Bibles, you may find some marks or say that verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16 were not included in the original manuscripts of the, the book of Mark. Most ancient manuscripts where we get, and, and hang with me just for a minute, I just, I want you to know what's going on here. The most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude, they make the end of Mark being verse 8. But later manuscripts that were found, which is what the Bible was taken from, piecing all of these manuscripts together, um, some of them had these endings on it. It has been debated by biblical critics and students for centuries, and it's still debated. But our, the knowledge of the original text of the Bible comes from the ancient handwriting manuscripts. And so although uh, the overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts include the passage that we are studying in, it is highly unlikely that the Gospel of Mark ended so abruptly with verse 8, with the women simply being afraid but seeing no concrete evidence of the resurrected Jesus, only an empty tomb. However, it is possible that the original ending of Mark's Gospel was might have been lost. Maybe that part of the manuscript was destroyed. Maybe somebody ripped it off. We don't know. But early Christian writers refer to this passage. So what does that mean? I mean, I've got a long list of about six or seven early Christian writers that reference the scriptures that we are talking about today. So what does that mean for you and for me right here at Holman Park Baptist Church? What it means is if it was important enough for the early Christian writers to cite and to quote and to use then that shows that it has been accepted as being genuine, as authentic, as part of the Bible. And so uh, the, the conclusion is, is that regardless of whether the longer ending was added later by Mark or some other biblical scholar, the important thing to remember is that it's part of the Bible. 
is part of God's holy word. And although these verses do not contain any new revelations of Jesus or God, when you when you read these things, you're going to see it's kind of like a victory lap. And then so they offer a great summary for the believer to take heart. And here we see the importance of continuing to do the work of Jesus. So that is the the, the disclaimer, the, the groundwork. So now let's just jump in to our passage. First of all, we see in Mark 16, verses 9 through 11, we see that believing in Jesus' resurrection is a testimony we must share, whether people believe it or not. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country, and they rushed back to tell others. But again, what does it say? No one believed them. So Jesus is resurrected, and no one believes it. The people that have saw it are testifying, but no one believes it. Still today, when I tell people about what Jesus has done in my life, when you tell people about what Jesus has done in your life, there are still people that do not believe it. This is not too far-fetched from today. But if you would, allow me just for a moment to kind of get into the moment, get into the mood, get into the the setting of this passage. You see, the disciples at this point had lost all hope. The disciples had lost all hope. It says in verse 10 that the disciples were grieving and weeping. This was not just, oh, woe is me. I mean, they were terrified. The disciples and Jesus' followers had lost hope because the Savior that they had dedicated their lives to was dead. Up until the very end, the disciples were thinking that this Messiah, Jesus, that they were following, they would have worldly power, they would have worldly influence, and now this man that they saw do these amazing things and spend so much time with them and teach them was now graveyard dead. They thought that he was going to reestablish The Jewish people, the Jewish nation, God's chosen. But see, Jesus had prepared them for this moment many times by teaching them why his death had to happen. But still, they hope that they had dedicated their life to was dead. You may be able to identify with the disciples here. You may be here this morning like many others who have lost sight of hope. It would be easy to, in today's culture that has strayed far from God's word to lose hope. Because when you peg your, your, your beliefs on something that seems to be true for the moment, that is moral, that is right, all of a sudden it changes and that's no longer right or wrong because there is no absolute truth in today's culture. Everyone is trying to live moral lives in a culture that keeps moving the line between what is moral and immoral. Folks, people are hurting. People are being taken advantage of, and most of them are only concerned about themselves. Maybe there is a prayer that has not been answered that you have lifted up. Maybe it has been answered, but not in the way that you expected. Maybe your future is unsure. Maybe you have been hurt in your life. Maybe you have hurt others in your life. 
Folks, we all come to worship today. We all come to God every moment of our lives looking for hope. Everything at that moment, in that moment of time, everything at that moment told the disciples that Jesus' mission had failed. The disciples were hiding for their lives. Their aggressors had one of the disciples' lives were, were over as they, their lives were over. They were marked men. And basically all this great movement that they had been a part of all of a sudden was dead and all the shine had worn off of it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, folks, there are times as believers where the shine is going to wear off of your uh, spiritual walk. It doesn't mean that it's dead, but it does mean that, I don't know, if some of y'all, I used to be like this, I used to think, boy, if I could just get ever back to ever to where, the way I was the first couple of years I was a Christian. Boy, I was, I was taking on hell with a water pistol. But now, things are tough. Things are, are it's not easy anymore. Matter of fact, it, it, it's tough. And I would go ahead and tell you that if you were to go back to the way you were when you first became a Christian, you likely may not be able to endure what you're enduring now. Because nothing touches us that God does not, does, God does not allow, right? And also, God prepares us in this moment for the next one, which is what he was doing with the disciples. So at that moment, they thought everything was lost. All hope was gone. But folks, there is hope today. Because your moments don't define you, your responses do. Yes, some of you have had terrible things happen to you. I've had terrible things happen to me. And we can let it define us and and hang that on a nail and say, this is why I'm like this. And make no decision to change that. But that is not on a situation that is on us. Because we are not defined what happened to us. We are defined in how we respond to it. And the same thing would be true with the disciples right now. This is a very low moment for them. Everything that they thought was true was now dead. And they, have, they felt like they were scared. You've been there and I've been there. But we know that because of what Scripture says, eventually all of these disciples died for their faith. They were martyred. They were killed for believing in Jesus Christ. My friends, do you die for a lie? No. God has not failed you for a minute, my friend. Jesus is alive and he is in control of this world today. Jesus is alive today and today is the message that Mary Magdalene gets to to deliver that there is hope today. If you want more about this story, we can read in John 20 verses 11 through 18. We get a little bit more detail on this story. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying as as she wept. She stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where Jesus' body had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, Who are you looking for? I would ask the same thing to you. Who are you looking for today? She thought that he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, 
Jesus said. He called her by name and she recognized that voice. She recognized that this was her Savior. This was the man that she thought was going to be dead in the grave that was alive and talking with her and said, Mary. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which in Hebrew means teacher. In other words, it wasn't just, hey, you're my friend, you're my, 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 my best friend. You're the person I've given my life to. He said, look, you're my master. You're my teacher. I'm following you. That's what that meant. And then Jesus says in verse 17, don't cling to me. I can imagine as she saw Jesus alive, after seeing the horror of what he went through, that all she wanted to do was wrap him up and hold on to him and never let him go. But he says, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but... Go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them I have seen the Lord. Then she gave the message. What do we see from this account of the same thing? Mary went to the grave of Jesus expecting to find death, but instead found life. Mary went to the grave of Jesus expecting to find death, but found life instead. And she expected despair, but she found hope. My friends, if you are not looking to Jesus, you will not find the hope that only comes from Him. If you look for your strength and your will in things that are dead or that will perish, die, rust, or fade away, you will be disappointed for the entire life that you live on this earth. And if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, it gets even worse because this was as good as he got. And then you spend eternity separated from God. Mary's newfound hope gave her a story to tell. Mary's command is one that all of us who are Christians have, which is to go and tell. We saw in verses 10 and 11, it says she went to the disciples who were grieving, weeping, and told them what happened. And it said they didn't believe her. You see, Jesus sent her to tell the other disciples that he was risen from the dead. And in that day, her testimony would not have been considered reliable because she was a woman. And they didn't believe that that, that women could the testimony of a woman could hold up in the court. I don't get it. That's Middle Eastern culture. But anyway, we've gone far beyond that. Yet Jesus trusted her, even though the disciples did not. You see, in Mark 12, verse or Mark 16, verses 12 and 13, talks about two people that encountered Jesus. We're not going to go look at that, but if you want to take notes, that fuller story, that fuller account is called The Road to Emmaus. And uh, that is found in Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. The inclusion of these verses shows that it wasn't just the men disciples that did not believe um, or in other words, it says that uh, it shows that it wasn't just that the because the women were telling them they didn't believe. They just it shows that they really didn't believe because here they had two men tell them the same thing. So it wasn't just because they were women. They had now four people telling them that Jesus is alive, but they still didn't believe it. The fact that Jesus is alive was just too good to be true to them. I think every Sunday that we get here together, we are sitting on that hope. We are sitting on that exciting fact that Jesus is alive. And we just sit soaking sour on it. 
William got the answer, folks, right here. We see in verse 14, refusal to believe in Jesus' resurrection is no excuse in refusing to share the gospel. It says, verse 14, still later he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him that he had been raised from the dead. And he told them, he told them, this is Jesus, go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. The King James Version says they will be damned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name and they will speak in new languages and they will be handled, they will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick. And they will be healed. So because of this passage, I've got a box of snakes up here and I've got a box of poison. We're going to hand them out here in just a minute. All right. Now, that's not what that means. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the thing was that this was not the disciples best moment. The trauma of recent events leading up to the including the crucifixion of Jesus was too much to bear for them. I feel sure that they were going through post-traumatic stress disorder and they didn't even know what it was back then. But here we see what Jesus is telling them, and he tells you and I, that unbelief is a sin. To not believe that Jesus has risen is a sin. Hebrews 10.26 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. My friends, if you are a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, but you are in sin that the Bible says is sin and you have no desire to get out of it, you are on very shaky ground because either you were never saved to start with or you're what they call a carnal Christian where you have just given up any hope of following the Lord's will and you are following your own. John 3.19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into this world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Isn't it amazing that we, in our sinful nature, we crave darkness? Oh, we don't call it darkness. In today's world, oh, if, you, if your mind is open to new things and to new ways to do things and, and new structures and new beliefs that are not of the Bible, you are enlightened. You are in the light. If you are conservative and, and you have all of these traditional values that are based on Scripture, you're the one that's dumb and dark. Well, I know this, that Jesus says that the gospel is foolishness to those that don't know it. And they don't understand it. But we see here that do not let a skeptical heart or unbelieving spirit keep you from knowing the power of living for Jesus. And then see, the third thing. Use Jesus' power to preach the good news. And again, it says, go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. I got news for you. I saw nothing in that scripture that says you've got to be seminary trained to do that. I saw nothing on there that says you have to be on a church staff or have a title in the church of Bible study leader or deacon or elder or whatever there may be. It says that all of us, if we are Christians, we are to go tell and baptize folks and make disciples. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's some misconceptions here. Uh, 
where it says, go into the world and preach the good news to everyone. It's not a suggestion, folks. It's kind of a command. Jesus didn't say, go if you feel like it. Jesus didn't say, go when it's convenient. Go if you feel like you can do it. He says, go. This command was not even obeyed by the disciples immediately. For many years, the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. And it was only until the church was being persecuted in the book of Acts that they spread out and begin to share the gospel throughout the world. The biggest reason Christianity is stagnant in America is because we are not being persecuted. Oh, yeah, we may get a little uh, friction on social media. Or we may not be invited to things or we may have some some rights taken away or things gone that we don't we don't agree with. But persecution of saying, look, if you believe in Jesus, we're going to kill you. We haven't seen that. We may. But to this point, we have. But overseas and other countries, that's a daily occurrence. So some misconceptions of preaching the good news. That's just for a missionary to do and go go to those people that are way over there in other parts of the country and teach them because we are in America. Folks, we got people from other countries sending missionaries to America to tell people about Jesus. Misconceptions you may have about preaching the good news. Number one, I'm not a preacher. That's what we pay you for. Some people might think, I'm afraid to talk in front of people. Or my faith is personal to me and I want to keep my beliefs to myself. I don't want to bruise the fruit of somebody else. I don't know what to say. So I won't say anything. God will understand that. No, He won't. (laughs) He understands perfectly. If we will testify for Christ, He knows that. And if we are scared to, we will not. Now, just because it says preach the word doesn't mean that y'all, I have to step aside and y'all just take your turns and rotate through here and preach something on the stage. Some of you are, are terrified to speak in front of other people in a public setting. And I've got news for you. I am too. If I test, if I do the personality test, I am a major introvert. But it's because of what Jesus does through me that I'm able to do this for his glory. But also, I would say, look, you may not be able to preach a sermon. You may not be able to teach a Bible study class. But when you are talking to your friends or you're talking to someone, you can tell them Jesus loves them. You can tell them the difference that Jesus has made in your life, not in a preachy way, but just sitting down over a cup of coffee and talking to somebody. Even if you don't know any scriptures that support it, tell them what Jesus is doing. One of the easiest things to do is invite somebody to church. That's not hard. But preach means to tell the good news of the gospel to everyone. And God may not have gifted you to speak. We're going to do something in the future that that I'm looking very forward to is that um, we're going to let everybody take a test of of spiritual gifts. This is not a pass-fail. We're not going to post the results on the wall like they do in college. It's not a pass-fail thing. But here's the thing. Let's say we have a hole to dig out in the yard today. Some of you are equipped to know how to get the shovel and start digging. Some of you are equipped to know how to measure it. Some of you are equipped to know how to decorate it and prepare it. Some of you are equipped to know how to care for those that are digging it. Some of you are equipped to know that... uh, You need to go be doing something else because you know nothing about digging holes. 
But that's just the thing. The hole needs to be dug. So everybody and I I think what we're going to learn through this is that God has placed everybody in this church with different spiritual gifts to complement one another to do what he has called us to do. So if you can't preach like me, that's okay. If you can't lead a Bible study teacher or Bible study class, that's fine. If you can't go to door to door, that's fine. But what can you do? That's what Jesus wants to know. And we see here, uh, anyone, verse 16, anyone who believes is baptized will be saved. So, baptism, I mean, excuse me, belief comes before baptism. Folks, baptism does not save someone, but it does show obedience or seriousness. So why, why, here we go, here comes the Baptist thing. Why do I got to be baptized, preacher? I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. Or I may have been baptized a long time ago. I was in another religion. I was in this other this other system. Or I I believe God and I are right. I don't need to be baptized. That's just something that the church does. I will tell you that as a Southern Baptist church, we recognize the Lord's Supper, which we will do in a minute, and we recognize baptism. And here is why baptism baptism is essential, because as we just read, Jesus commands it. If you are fighting baptism, you are fighting a command of Jesus. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him. So the power of the gospel is found in Jesus, not party tricks. We see in the Old Testament that God would use signs when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Pharaoh. He gave them special miracles and plagues to conduct. In the New Testament, the apostles were given special signs that enforced their message. And so when it starts talking here about tongues and snakes and poison, I think too many people focus on one or the other, but not all three. So if you're all about speaking in tongues, go ahead and get your box of snakes with that. And if you're going to get your box of snakes, don't forget your poison and take that too. This was never mentioned for us to build a denomination or a cult-like status over that one action, whether it be snakes or tongues or poison, whatever it may be. Speaking in tongues is not even mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels, and it seems to reflect something that happened after Pentecost. Drinking poison without harm is found nowhere in the New Testament. Anointing the sick with oil is mentioned in verse 13, but no laying on of hands by the apostles occurs in the Gospels. And so what this is saying is, is that when you have the power of Jesus Christ, you've got the power to do amazing things. So if we assume, despite the evidence to the contrary, that this does not belong in Scripture, does it teach that handling snakes in church? Absolutely not. Because verses 17 and 18 contains no imperatives. In other words, it does not say, go out and handle snakes. It says they will pick up snakes with their hands. It is a declaration that something will occur, not a command that someone has to do. In other words, it's saying that you will do amazing things when you give yourself over to sharing the gospel. And you give yourself over to that power. And so finally we see that Jesus will confirm his power in you. In verses 19 and 20, it says, When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up to heaven. 
and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Can you imagine, first of all, being the disciples and seeing Jesus and finally realizing who he is and then watching him ascend? As dark as that day was when they thought he was dead, can you imagine what it looked like when he ascended? Jesus' power is given to a believer for action. How many of y'all enjoy having power in your house? Oh, yeah. Especially nowadays, that we are thankful for power and air conditioning. And sometimes in our neighborhood, y'all might get it too. I know Homeland Park is, is famous for this. You get the brownouts, a little and then, you know, comes back, you got to reset every clock in your house. And then every now and then we do have power outages. But, but I'll tell you what, how many of us are going to go out there today after church, and when you go home before you eat your, your lunch or take your nap or whatever, you just go outside to your house and you find the power meter you know, that's just spinning there. And you just sit there and you study it. And you say, oh man, that is a beautiful power meter. Look, look how it is spinning. Isn't it neat that they can just take a device and see how much power I'm using? Look at all the power that's flowing from the ground or flowing overhead. It's going into the... Isn't this just great? This is a great power meter. Do y'all, are y'all in love with your power meter? No. No. You only, you only miss it when it's not working. So if you're looking and staring at that power meter and you wonder why that your house has no power, but you're looking at it, oh, this is a pretty meter. Oh, it is nice and gray and and the glass is so clear and the numbers are so pretty. But you got no power in your house because you have not turned on the main switch. You have not turned on the main to release the power that that power meter regulates. And my friends, we sit here and we talk about the gospel. We preach about the gospel. We talk about being a good person and how great it is. But we're not pulling the switch and sharing it and going and telling and baptizing and making disciples. So when we come back, God's going to find a lot of people. When Jesus comes back, he's going to find a lot of people in churches talking about how pretty the power is, but never using it. Jesus' power that we've been studying about all through the book of Mark is given for what he sees here. To, is given for a believer to take action. Jesus' command for us is clear. He says to go. As a believer in a church, we have the greatest power in the world within us. And it's time that we share it in ways that God has gifted us. It's time to take Jesus more seriously than we take ourselves. Many of us, we don't have room for Jesus in our life because we're on the throne of our heart. My needs, what I want. What good is it to be woke with this world but asleep to the gospel? Christians, you have the answer to do what the world needs. Your family needs it. Your co-workers need it. Your friends need it. Those places that God puts you, they need it. Living for Jesus is not a spectator sport. You have the power of Jesus. Now it is time to use it. And my friend, if you are here today and you just, this message, you realize that that you're not doing what you need to do, that you're not plugging into the power, or you don't know the power of Jesus Christ. 
and you want to know that today. I'm going to give you just a moment before we have our Lord's Supper. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. Because if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy, sinful way, you have blasphemed God. So if you are not right with God this morning, I encourage you to come forward. You can come to this altar and pray. You can speak with me if you want to be baptized or join this church or whatever needs you may have. We're going to have a brief invitation. If you would stand and respond. Donald, would you come lead us?